Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Anthony Brooks, and this is On Point. Happy Friday, everybody. This hour, we're digging into the big stories of the week, beginning with the pandemic. Yesterday, the U.S. shattered its single-day record with 75,600 new cases of COVID-19. CDC Director Robert Redfield warned of the double whammy of COVID and the flu this fall. I am worried. I do think the fall and the winter of 2020 and 2021 are going to be the, probably one of the most difficult times that we've experienced in American public health because of what you said, the co-occurrence of COVID and influenza. At the White House, President Trump held a news conference earlier in the week to talk about China, but it turned into a free-flowing stream of consciousness address that included attacks on his Democratic opponents. You know what they've done in Washington. They have some... Incredible example right here. Example. I know of one example. I think they have a number of them, but one is incredible. And Vice President Biden unveiled a $2 trillion infrastructure plan that he said would fight climate change and create jobs. When Donald Trump thinks about climate change, the only word he can muster is hoax. When I think about climate change, the word I think of is jobs. And we're digging into the week in the news, the big stories this hour on Point. And with me from Falls Church, Virginia, Lisa Desjardins, correspondent of the PBS NewsHour. Lisa, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Anthony. Glad to be here. And Jane Koston joins us from Washington. She's senior politics reporter at Vox. Jane, welcome to you as well. Happy Friday. Thanks so much for having me. So... Let's begin. Uh, I'm afraid it's grim news this week about the pandemic. Yesterday, for the first time, the U.S. recorded uh, 70,000 cases in one day. Texas and Florida each recorded more than 10,000 COVID-19 cases in one day. The death toll at 138,000 continues to rise. Lisa, I'll start with you. I mean, fair to say this pandemic... I mean, what can we say? It continues to rage seemingly out of control in most American states. Well, it is important to say that this is a continuation, but it's really more than that. This is the virus picking up speed in this country. Those numbers of cases that are records that you talked about a second ago, that's really twice the number of cases that we saw just a few weeks ago. So that was already a high level. That was already a level this country did not want. Now we're at twice the level of what it was. We do not have a national strategy, and we still see some states continuing reopening policies. A lot of times we talk about the hotspots because they do shift with this virus. But one thing that's important to realize right now, Anthony, is that 41 states have seen increased cases in the last two weeks. So while there are some places where it is worse, this virus is gaining ground in almost in, in most of the country right now. Mm. Jane, what are you seeing as a sort of general observation just to kick us off in terms of uh, the way this pandemic um, is, uh, you know, really moving ahead aggressively? It's interesting if you look at global trends outside of a couple of countries like New Zealand, which took very firm action very early on and still have essentially closed their borders We're seeing Barcelona, for instance, is going back into lockdown. And some of the states that we thought early in this pandemic had experienced the worst of the outbreak, but then were, you know, the cases were starting to peter off, are starting to experience cases again, including New York State, for example. And so it's fascinating because as the infection rate is growing, that means that more young people are being infected, which should mean, based on what we know, that the infection rate is um, that you know the number of deaths 
and infections might be increasing, but not among younger people. Let's keep in mind that many of the people who are still most at risk are people in nursing homes and people at long-term care facilities, including folks with disabilities, who I think are kind of an ignored population in this conversation. But it does seem as if this is the kind of thing that we're going to be fighting for at least another year or so. I think that there's a sense from the White House that if you can essentially declare the war on coronavirus over, we can get back to quote unquote normal. But what normal looks like, we might not see that until 2022. Mm. And uh, you mentioned the response from the White House. And I, and I want to get to that. But I want to ask you both about sort of the, the varied responses from the different states. I'm speaking to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts, along with some other northeastern states, saw terrible spikes in March, but since then have managed to bring the numbers down. Lisa, you mentioned, I think it was you, Lisa, mentioned that we're seeing some numbers creep back up in New York. But my question is, and I'll start with you, Lisa, in terms of what's happening in the Northeast, does that suggest a path for other states? Or is there any good news anywhere? What what, what do you think? Well, it's possible. I mean, if you look at Maine, for example, Maine has had, Maine is fortunate, it borders only one other state, but they have uh, for example, required testing of anyone who enters the state as a tourist or who stays in a facility there. Um, they've had some very significant quarantines that maybe we should look at. But, you know, I, I think what Jane said is right, that, that this moves around and we're not paying attention perhaps to all the populations that we need to. But, the, you know, there's one big factor we know. We know that masks work. And we know that there are not mask mandates in most of the country now. And in fact, there's not even necessarily encouragement of wearing masks in every place. So that's something that we really need to hear more about from our leadership. And while the president has worn a mask now in public um, at least once, it's not something that he's talking about. It's not something that he's charging Americans to do, um, potentially as a patriotic duty. So that's a missing piece of all this, as, of course, is testing, which we are still far behind the world. We've been this four months. We still don't have um, access to testing for most Americans, and we don't have contact tracing. Those are the ways, as Jane was talking about, um, when you look at the global response, countries that have done well have used those tools, and those are tools this country still does not have um, on a really large scale. Mm. Jane, speaking of uh, wearing masks, it's such a basic idea. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that Robert Redfield, the, the director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, said this week, uh, I think to ABC News, he said that if everyone wore a mask, we could end this pandemic in four to eight weeks. And, and yet, as Lisa just said, um, you know, this is still being debated around the country or, or, or isn't being embraced uniformly. I think that that's one of the challenges of experiencing a public health crisis in real time. When we think about previous pandemics or epidemics, we have the benefit of hindsight. So when we're thinking back to, say, the beginnings of the HIV crisis, we look back on those early days of calling HIV grid gay-related infectious diseases as like, you know, how could people have possibly thought that? But let's go back to earlier this year when we heard from many medical professionals that masks weren't necessary, that masks weren't needed, that masks might actually be a bad idea, not just because they might, you know, having too many masks might mean that medical professionals couldn't get them, but that you know, individuals didn't need them. The focus needed to be on social distancing. And that's an entirely normal part of public health is for, you know, to ch- for public health officials to change their minds based on new information, which is what I hope everyone does. But I think that that viewpoint change, it's really hard to get individuals and communities to shift quickly hmm. when it comes to this kind of you know, area of concern. And especially because of the wonders of federalism, let's keep in mind that public health is the responsibility of individual states. Um, you know, it is not technically something the federal government could not enforce a mask mandate nationwide. And so you're having individual states, and individual communities having these internal conversations. We've seen that in Georgia, for instance, when the mayor of Atlanta wanted to enforce a mask mandate after she and her family contracted COVID-19, the state governor is suing her because he has an executive order saying you cannot put in place a mask mandate. So I think that one of the challenges about coronavirus is that coronavirus has meshed upon existing fault lines in our politics and in our culture. And this is just another example. 
It's uh, it's quite an example. I want to talk a little bit about the White House uh, response to this and news this week. And, and, and specifically, th- there seemed to be a concerted effort from the White House to discredit Anthony Fauci, the country's top uh, public health official. Peter Navarro, President Trump's top advisor on trade, wrote an editorial that attacked Fauci, saying, among other things, quote, he's been wrong about everything I've interacted with him on, unquote. Now, interestingly, USA Today, which published the piece, has since said it didn't meet the paper's fact-checking standards. But before we get to that, um, Lisa, what's what's the game here? Why is Navarro and parts of the White House going after Fauci like this? Well, it's clear that, you know, the, the narratives are different. You know, they're, they're, they're saying, and they don't always say different things, but, they're, but they certainly have different um, w- things that they are prioritizing and focusing on. Fauci has said the things that we heard from Jane, that this crisis could go on for quite a long time. Even if a vaccine does appear by the end of the year or beginning of next year, we've got a long way to go. The White House is instead trying to say, and Navarro saying, no, it is not that bad. Uh, it is time to reopen. They're focused more on the economy. Fauci's focused more on the health crisis. Um, and, and those two narratives go different ways. So there's a reason that the White House is pushing back. But it is notable that Fauci, who's our top infectious disease expert, has not actually spoken to the president in months. So it also tells us something about the information that the president and potentially Navarro have about the health aspects of this crisis and what they're looking at it. They're not necessarily looking at the data in the way that Fauci is. They're looking at what they want to happen, which is the economy to reopen. And, and that could be just some, some very tricky decisions that are made about public health, but not based on public health. Mm. Uh, I was struck by that. Uh, Jane, Lisa mentioned that uh, Fauci hasn't spoken to the president in months. I mean, What's your reaction to that? Because to me, that just seems mind boggling. I think that Trump's understanding was that coronavirus would be a distinct problem, a distinct problem with a beginning, a middle and an end. And so I think that what you've seen from the White House is a real urge to move on. And that's not reflective of national opinion. It's interesting to me that the American populace has been far more conservative with regard to coronavirus than the administration has been, than I think some of our leading ideas thinkers in public life have been. You're hearing from Americans that they're still not going to public events. They do not want to go to indoor dining facilities. And they're very concerned about sending their children back to school while also recognizing that they very much want to send their children back to school. And so I think that um, my colleague Dylan Scott wrote a really smart piece on the White House's war on Dr. Fauci. And um, you know, he wrote that as an earthy but authoritative voice on the coronavirus pandemic, Fauci inadvertently broke the first rule of the Trump White House. No one gets to outshine the president. And I think we've seen this time and again. Right. Jane, hold if- that thought because we're coming up on a break, uh, but we'll come back to this. Jane Coaston uh, of Vox, Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour. We're talking about the week in the news. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks, and uh, it's our Friday Week in Review. I'm joined by Jane Coaston of Vox and Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour. And I want to introduce uh, introduce now Sewell Chan. He joins us from Los Angeles, editorial page editor of the Los Angeles Times. Sewell, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you. Hello, Anthony. Hello to you. And um, before I come to you, Sewell, I, I want to go back to, to Jane, because, Jane, I sort of cut you off there before the break, but you were making an important point about the disconnect between the White House and Anthony Fauci, the nation's top health expert, public health expert. Yeah, I think that one of the challenges that we're facing right now is that Dr. Fauci, as my colleague Dylan Scott wrote, essentially broke the first rule of Trump, which is that no one gets to outshine him. We saw that a little bit earlier in the administration with Steve Bannon. If you'll recall that all of the news stories about Steve Bannon being the secret power behind the White House so enraged Trump that Steve Bannon was then pushed out of the White House. The idea of anyone being more important and more visible within this White House than Trump is deeply irritating to him. And I think it's especially because Dr. Fauci is not attempting to parlay his his um his ideas or the science into something that's in- entirely going to make the administration happy. You know, I'm sure he would love to be able to say that we should open everything up right now, but that's not what he can say based on the science. And this is someone who has worked on numerous pandemics and was key to the NIH's work against HIV AIDS in the late 1980s and ni- early 1990s. Right. Yeah. I mean, science and, and the facts around science aren't always convenient in a sort of political environment. Sewell, let me come to you. What, what do you observe from California in terms of this um, clash between Fauci and the White House? You know, one thing I'd point out is that, you know, not to be too technical, but Fauci is technically the top, the nation's top infectious disease expert. Public health messages should be coming out of the CDC. But sadly, both the CDC and the NIH, to varying extents, have been really disempowered uh, um, in this uh, whole matter, as we've just been hearing. And it's part of, and I would argue, a broader uh, rejection of science rejection of expertise and rejection of medical and, uh, and, and scientific authority that has actually been really going on for quite some time. And I think it's extremely worrisome. Mm. Um, I think here, you, Anthony, you asked how it's being played out in California. I think it's extremely worrisome here. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we're definitely uh, at a peak. Um, the, the state is basically virtually back on lockdown. And unfortunately, there continue to be um, county-by-county severe differences, for example, in Orange County, where uh, mask usage is much less than in neighboring Los Angeles County. L.A. County, with 10 million people, is the largest county in the nation. So to have a a very large county right next to it where there are different rules, you know, that probably is quite uh, reminiscent of what we're seeing uh, elsewhere in the nation with state-by-state divisions. Can you, um, Sue, go into a little bit of detail here? What did uh, Governor Gavin Newsom actually order uh, this week in terms of uh, sort of pulling back on the opening up, I guess is the best way to, 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 to describe it. What, what did he actually what did he actually do? Yeah, this week, uh, so two weeks ago, he ordered bars and indoor restaurant dining and most of the state to be shut. This week, he ordered the rest of the state to also close bars and indoor dining rooms. And the hardest hit counties, which are home to 88% of the state's population. He also ordered the shutdown of businesses such as gyms, malls, nail salons, hair salons, et cetera. Yeah. Wow. I mean, this is something. I mean, is he being blamed for not doing something more uh, uh, more aggressive earlier or sort of how's how's this being received in California? Hard to generalize for the nation's largest state, but I would say that the governor would got a lot of credit for being um, the first governor of the nation to kind of order a statewide lockdown very early on. And I think that the questions right now are whether the attempt to reopen was too soon, too fast. Right. So, Jane, listening to Sewell, I mean, this is this is the challenge that has bedeviled so many states uh, opening too fast, too soon. Right. Yeah. And it's it's particularly impactful on states like Georgia, for example, which, you know, around April 23rd was talking about reopening and talking about you, you saying that. Nail care artists, estheticians, massage therapists could reopen on Friday, April 24th. This was in April, you know, that's months ago. And we're still kind of in this midst of, you know, when you get the pandemic under control and you think that it's time to reopen because small businesses are suffering, we might be seeing as many as 60,000 small businesses closing um, during this year as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. And you're seeing states like Georgia saying, okay, you know, it looks like we've got this under control. We're going to start reopening. And then the caseload starts to expand. And then hospitals start getting overwhelmed. And you're seeing Governor Kemp saying, you know, at 
saying essentially, please wear masks. This, you know, he in a quote, he said, it's the community that defeats this, this virus, not the government. But then he adds, we need younger Georgians to recognize the importance of following public health guidance. And so there very much is a sense from local officials that look, we really, really want you to do this thing, but we're not going to mandate it because we're concerned about the economic impact. So I am actually, it's been fascinating because I think um, that California had been a relatively bright spot in this conversation, but you're also seeing San Francisco and other cities that it seemed as if had a really good hold over the pandemic, having to go back towards some of the earlier phase one, phase two mandates with regard to opening facilities, because again, cases keep increasing. That's one of the challenges is that this pandemic is extraordinarily virulent. And especially with the existence of asymptomatic carriers, people who may have the, coronavirus, but don't exhibit any symptoms and thus don't know to, you know, stay away from other people or to continue wearing face masks or to self-quarantine, we're going to see, keep seeing an expansion of cases with millions of people infected and really sadly, thousands of people dying. I want to ask uh, all three of you about uh, what I thought was a really provocative piece from Maryland Governor uh, Larry Hogan in The Washington Post this week. Uh, governor Hogan is a Republican governor, and he, he, he essentially published a piece that said, why didn't Donald Trump help my state with uh, coronavirus testing? Um, he says Trump downplayed the severity of the coronavirus, leaving states to come up with their own testing strategies and supplies. And it's this idea that states are really on their own. And I know, Jane, you mentioned that, of course, this is a federalist system. But Lisa, let me come to you on this. This idea, I mean, I just feel like this has explains so much why this country is in the position it's in, because there's this hodgepodge of approaches state by state, which seems to really be making this situation so much worse and unnecessarily so maybe. That is that was an extraordinary op-ed, you know, and Governor Hogan has talked about this before, but not ever been so specific. And what he's saying is not only that there's a lack of a national strategy, but he was also saying in some cases, uh, the actions or inaction by the Trump White House actually made things more difficult for states. That it, it wasn't just that there wasn't a strategy helping states, but that it was actually making state things more difficult. In his example, he was working overtime to try and get some tests from South Korea, which he was able to get. Um, but he was concerned that the federal government would seize those tests. He actually posted National Guard troops from Maryland to guard them. Um, but but his his larger point, and and I think that Hogan himself also is not someone who wants, you know, a muscular federal government to take over state functions. But I think what these states are saying is, without some basic national strategies, we're competing against each other, and and we're not able to put down this virus in a national way because it's a national problem. You can stamp it out in one place; it'll pop out in another place. And and he's saying that the lack of really addressing or acknowledging the problem is just at the beginning of the issues for governors. It was a very significant op-ed. The White House is saying in the past, Hogan has complimented the president. So they're saying that this criticism should be rejected. However, it, it is a very, it's a fascinating read. Really is. Um, you know, you mentioned the states are left to sort of compete with each other and in some cases to compete with the federal government. I mean, I remember this was uh, a couple of months back. Uh, our governor here in Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, another Republican, talked about the challenge of landing the bid, for example, for uh, protective equipment. Uh, they were sometimes competing against the government, the federal government, which had a much bigger um, a lot more muscle in terms of landing that bid. It was a real source of frustration. Sewell, I'd like to ask you about that. This idea, I mean, I, I'll read you just a, a bit of what um, Governor Hogan said. So every every governor went their own way um, without a sort of 50-state strategy. Every governor went their own way, which is how the United States ended up with such a patchwork response. Your thoughts? I think that's enti entirely right. And, you know, in, in, to look at it, fully and fairly, you know, part of it could be that the system encourages decentralization. Janine Interlandi has a new article in the New York Times that talks about why America is failing at controlling the pandemic. And part of it points out that the CDC is, it is the, the you know, kind of national, you know, public health and, and epidemiology agency of the United States. 
but it can only do, but it sort of treats states as clients. It can't really compel the states to even furnish data. But that having been said, it's no excuse. There has not been a coordinated whole of government uh, uh, response to this pandemic in terms of the marshalling of resources, the messaging for what people should do, and the uh, uh, and the concentration of you know will and personnel that would be needed to to fight this. And I think that fragmentation of government of governance right now is really going to be the big takeaway from this because the countries and really we're at this point by far the worst off of the developed nations in terms of uh, our, our response to this. Uh, we may have to ask some hard questions in the long run about whether, you know, aspects of our public health system are even set up correctly and resourced correctly. Well, I want to move on and talk about some other uh, stuff beyond the pandemic, including President Trump's uh, press conference on Tuesday at the White House. Um, he covered a lot of ground. Um, uh, he talked uh, about China. He talked about the coronavirus. He talked about uh, Joe Biden uh, at one point suggesting that uh, if Biden followed through on his climate and infrastructure plan, um, it would call for that called for drastic reduction in carbon emissions. Um, it would essentially mean meaning uh, abolish windows. Here's a little bit of what the president said. That basically means no windows, no nothing. It's very hard to do. I tell people when they want to go into some of these buildings, how are your eyes? Because they won't be good in five years. And I hope you don't mind cold office space in the winter and warm office space in the summer because your air conditioning is not the same as the good old days. President uh, Trump there on Tuesday. Uh, Jane Coaston, what was your takeaway from what the president said, what the president set out to say and what he ended up saying? It seemed to go in a lot of different directions, that press conference. It's interesting because I think that you provided a very, a very good summary of what the press conference could have been, but perhaps not what it actually was. Um, you know, for instance, Trump said that Joe Biden had gone so far right when he clearly meant left and accused Biden of wanting to abolish the suburbs. And then, you know, I, I have to I have to quote directly. We have great agreements where when Biden and Obama used to bring killers out, they would say, don't bring them back to our country. We don't want them. Well, we have to. We don't want them. They wouldn't take them. Now with us, they take them. Someday I'll tell you why. Someday I'll tell you why. But they take them and they take them very gladly. They used to bring them out and they wouldn't even let the airplanes land. They brought them back by airplanes. And it's interesting because when you read the exact commentary made by Trump, it starts sounding more like beat poetry and less like a speech, especially because this was supposed to be a conversation about new measures aimed at China to punish it for what was taking place in Hong Kong, the oppression of Hong Kong citizens. And it turned into a stream of consciousness that was vaguely campaign related, but vaguely unrelated to really anything taking place right now. And so I think that it's worth having the conversation about what he was attempting to discuss, for instance, climate change or coronavirus or China. But what he actually said is so unhinged from anything that we're attempting to discuss at all. It's really interesting. Lisa, what did you hear in that press conference? Well, my main thought at this moment is I'm really glad Jane went first on that question. <laughs> I, think she, <laughs> I, think, I think she nailed it. I think that was the right quote. And I think... Um, I, I to add to that, to expand a little bit, there are many different Trumps that come to the microphone, right? And I think that one observation, there's a, there's a lot to think about with that news conference, a lot about um, sort of how he approaches his job, what he thinks is important, what he's thinking about, what he even understands to be real or true. But one other factor to keep in mind is that he has not, he's only had one campaign rally since this pandemic began, that was in Tulsa. And clearly this is someone who does not do, who is different, I'll say, in front of a crowd that is not friendly. And reporters are not going to applaud him. They're not there to support him. They are there to listen and get answers. The next day, he had a different event at the White House uh, with a friendly crowd, which was when he talked about his effort to take down regulations, which is another very big topic. Um, and it was a very different energy from the president. He was more focused. He seemed to stay more on script, though certainly not on script the whole time. But it wasn't that same sort of meandering, um, seemingly lost in the lights kind of verbiage that we saw when he didn't have a supportive crowd 
I think this is a president who's a showman. And when he doesn't have a responsive crowd, you, you see him uh, really get lost in his own words. Well, let's talk about one of the things that he was ostensibly there to talk about, and that is uh, U.S. Uh, policy toward China. So the administration this week said it's considering uh, new get-tough measures against China, including a travel ban on Chinese Communist Party members. And on Wednesday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo warned China about its efforts to dominate the South China Sea. Here's Pompeo. If Beijing violates the international law and free nations do nothing, then history shows that the CCP will simply take more territory. That happened in the last administration. Our statement gives significant support to ASEAN leaders who have declared that the South China Sea disputes must be resolved through international law, not might makes right. What the CCP does to the Chinese people is bad enough, but the free world shouldn't tolerate Beijing's abuses as well. So, Sewell Chan, I'll come to you on this. the, the the Trump administration considering uh, sweeping back on, I mean, uh, big, big restrictions on travel uh, to the U.S. by the members of the Chinese Communist Party. What, what's your response to that and what the administration is trying to accomplish here? I think the Trump administration is, well, there is an escalating kind of uh, um, Cold War essentially emerging between the United States and China. And it's very, very unfortunate, and it's marked by, you know, geopolitical to some extent, but largely economic rivalry that I think has gone on for quite some time. And it's really important to look at – I'm happy to get to Barr and Pompeo in a moment, but it's really happy – you know, important to look at the context here. You know, the U.S. and China – the U.S. largely pursued a policy of um, opening markets to China and, and opening itself to Chinese students, Chinese ideas, Chinese technology, definitely helping China in uh, 2000, 2001 to enter the WTO. Uh, that was obviously under, I guess, end of Clinton. So really for at least four to six presidencies, you know, there has really been an effort to engage in China. There's an emerging bipartisan sense in Washington and elsewhere that that engagement has not been working. Mm. So I think that context is important to mention. Now, the question is whether... So well, I'm going to have to jump in only because we're coming up uh, against a break. Um, but I want to thank you for joining us today. That's Sewell Chan, editorial page editor for the Los Angeles Times. It was great to have you. Thank you for being with us. And uh, Jane Coaston and Lisa Desjardins, stick with us. There's more ahead. We're going to get into politics. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about the week in review, the the news of the week. My guests, Jane Coaston of Vox and Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour. And I, I want to move on, uh, Jane and Lisa, to politics and talk about uh, presidential politics specifically, beginning with plans by the Republican Party to to scale back um, the Republican National Convention in Jacksonville, Florida, next month. This, of course, because of the pandemic, Florida now a hotspot. President Trump, of course, had been counting on a big, raucous convention. It was planned for North Carolina. But after Governor Roy Cooper pushed back on that idea, the Republicans headed to Florida. But the state is now one of the epicenters. So where do, the, where do we end up, uh, Lisa, in terms of a RNC in Jacksonville? What's up? We end up with a lot of reporters trying to figure out if they should get plane tickets or not. <laughs> we, What's we're having on? the same discussion up here. <laughs> right? So I think where, where the RNC, the Republicans are, they have said now that they are going to limit the first three days of the convention to 2,500 people each, which sounds like a very large amount in a pandemic. 
it is much smaller than the 50,000 or more that would usually be at a convention daily. So there's obviously a lot to discuss there, but that's what they're doing. The final day when the president is set to speak is set to be 7,000 people. Now, we have yet to hear officially, but the understanding is there may be mask requirements. Um, In addition, they're looking for an outdoor venue, which, of course, many people have commented in Florida in August is not ideal, but this is where they are right now. The Democrats at the same time, um, I obtained an email, so did other reporters, that was sent to congressional officials by the Democratic Party last night saying they have also made a decision. They are asking, they are telling members of Congress not to come to the convention at all. And that's in Milwaukee, right? That is to be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's right. So essentially, Democrats are now telegraphing that they may not have any in-person events that look like a regular convention. We're still waiting to see what kind of events they have. The candidate Biden himself has said he will accept the nomination there. We expect some speech and there will be a vice presidential nominee. There'll be a lot of interest in that. But it looks like Democrats are moving toward maybe the smallest footprint they can have in Milwaukee. And and we're not really sure what that looks like at all, but it will likely be many fewer people, um, far fewer people than the Republicans are moving toward right now. Mm. So Jane, um, let's stick with the Republicans. How big a blow is this to President Trump? Because of course, he's itching for an opportunity to get before a big crowd. You mentioned that before the last break, just how important this is part of his oxygen. Right. I think it's incredibly important. And it's worth noting that the entire reason why the convention was pulled out of Charlotte was because Democratic Governor Roy Cooper had said, organize, you have to adhere by strict social distancing guidelines. And the Republican National Committee would rather not do that. But now moving to Jacksonville, they are facing the fact that they will indeed have to abide by some of these rules. And you uh, limiting attendance for the first three days to delegates only, which is about 2,500 people, which is, as Lisa pointed out, a large number of people. And then for the final day, having six to 7,000 people. But I think an underestimated element of this is that there's been a lot of conversation about holding events outside. And holding a large event in Jacksonville in August outside, to me, sounds deeply unpleasant. Um, and especially with the idea of extreme weather, let's keep in mind, if there's not enough happening, that we are going to be entering hurricane season soon. So it's worth noting that though Jacksonville is further north in the state and not as vulnerable to hurricanes, extreme weather can happen. So I think that this is a big challenge between you know this is there the difference between what trump wants to see and what trump may actually get and while trump what what trump wanted was the ultimate coronation of his incumbency and what he might get is a pretty relatively small convention that does the work of what these conventions are supposed to do which is to nominate their candidate and to agree on a party platform you know, you mentioned uh, outside events in Jacksonville. Um, you know, I've heard as well, among other things, I'm, you know, I may be wrong about this, but I think I'm right. It's hot in August in Jacksonville outside. <laughs> so that, that would be that would be pretty, pretty uncomfortable. Um, I want to move on and talk about other political news. There were some important primaries. So uh, here's former GOP senator and former Trump attorney general Jeff Sessions. He lost his bid to reclaim his Senate seat in the Alabama primary. And in his concession speech, he defended his decision to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. Here he is. On recusal, I followed the law. I did the right thing. And I saved the president's bacon in the process. Any other action to try to squelch an investigation in that environment would not have worked. It really would have been a catastrophe. So Jeff Sessions was beaten by uh, former football coach Tommy Tuberville. President Trump had thrown his weight behind uh, Tuberville. Is it Tuberville or Tuberville? I'm sorry, I should know that. Um, Lisa, what's your response to this race? Because, boy, Jeff Sessions took a licking from President Trump, and uh, President Trump did as much as he could to make sure he wasn't going to get this Senate seat back. The story of Jeff Sessions is sort of like a, a, a Greek epic tale of a politician This is someone who was actually the first senator to stick his neck out for candidate Donald Trump. He was the first senator to endorse Donald Trump. That's why he became attorney general for many in in large part. Um, And and then look at how that relationship completely undermined Sessions' future. He got one of his dream jobs as AG. Uh, he, He wanted to be a judge, but that didn't happen. But then he had to lose that job because of the person he supported as president. 
you know, I think what's interesting here is this sort of gives me the opportunity to talk about something that might not get enough attention, which is the down ballot races here. Hmm. You know, Alabama is, is a red state that has a Democratic senator right now. And, and that is a seat that Democrats really want to hold on to. It's not clear if they have a chance yet or not in that state. We're going to see. Uh, but more importantly, right now, many races in the Senate are moving Democrats' directions. Democrats feel very strongly that they can take back the Senate. And just today, when we're looking at the House, Democrats should be on defense in the House. They won so many races in 2018, many incumbents there in purple districts that should be difficult to defend. But instead, the winds are blowing the other way. Today, the Cook Political Report, which is one of the biggest ratings groups that looks at where races stand, moved 20 races toward Democrats. And that includes some races that should be swing races uh, where Republicans should have a good chance. Instead, they're now moving solidly Democrat. This is in seats all across the country, Nebraska, uh, the Midwest, also in the South, um, North, North Carolina. So what we're seeing is a real um, political problem for Republicans up and down the ballot. Interesting. Um, Jane, I want to stick in, stick with Alabama. It's Tommy Tuberville, by the way. I, I apologize for mispronouncing his name. He's going to be uh, challenging the incumbent Doug Jones, a Democrat who is considered vulnerable. W- what do you see down there in that race? It's interesting because I've always said that it would be great to have a political race that were largely settled on the issue of college football, and I appear to have gotten my <laughs> wish. Um And it's interesting because Tuberville's experience is purely in he's never been elected to to office before, but he is very well known in the area because he was a Auburn's football coach. And it was interesting because uh, Trump endorsed him in March, saying that he was a terrific head football coach at Auburn, which if anyone remembers the 2008 Auburn season, in which they finished five and seven and lost to Vanderbilt and played a three two game against Mississippi State that was downright unwatchable. That uh, description is a little arguable. But it's interesting, you know, you've seen the Alabama Democratic Party using college football heavily in some of their tweets about this race. And it's a really it's funny for people who are not familiar with the world of college football, how visceral these experiences and these memories will be for many people. You know, there's a lot about Tommy Tuberville that I think that Tuberville that I think that there is to criticize outside of his roles in in um, college football. For instance, this is someone who didn't live in Alabama until two years ago. And, you know, he was a registered voter in Florida as of November of 2018. And that was something that Sessions brought up against him. But this essentially became a race about who loves Trump more and more importantly, who does Trump love more? And it'll be fascinating to see what that looks like going forward, you know, where Tommy Tuberville is arguing that Sharia law is coming to Mobile and Doug Jones is using references to, you know, Auburn's past bad defenses. They ran the 4-3, which I'll never understand, in 2007 and 2008. <laughs> and so it's fascinating to see an issue, you know, there's always that, mo- those, you know, those people say, when they talk to sports reporters, oh, you got to stick to sports. Well, regrettably, if you're in politics, you have to get into sports. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I have to jump in because I get I never get the chance to talk football either. So I'm excited about this. I have wondered about we shouldn't take it for granted that everyone in Alabama is an Auburn fan. There is a oh, huge they are 100 percent not. Right. Right. It's so funny. That, if so you look at the numbers issue. in Tuscaloosa. If you look at the numbers, uh, there was a great map that went around that uh, Tuscaloosa, which is the home of the University of Alabama, who's kind of owned Auburn the last couple of years, was a session stronghold. These these rivalries matter. Yeah. The Iron wow. Bowl matters. And it'll be interesting to see how that comes up in November. Really interesting. Exactly. So another uh, major primary that I want to talk about a little bit about is the is Maine's Democratic primary. So State House Speaker Sarah Gideon defeated two other Democrats. That means she will take on Republican Senator Susan Collins. This is a seat, of course, that Democrats think they have a good chance of picking up toward their uh, hope um, in terms of their hope of taking over the Senate. Lisa, what do you see yeah. in Maine and, and how vulnerable Susan Collins might be and how strong a, a, a challenger Sarah Gideon is? What a great race to talk to. And I got a shout out to the Desjardins family in Maine. Sarah Gideon is has been running um, largely on health care. Uh, she's known for being a state senator. Um, and Maine is a state that has very deep struggles with health care. If you look at the number of people in Maine who have not one but two chronic conditions, it is near the top of the national list. They have very serious health care issues. Now, that helped 
uh, Susan Collins in the past when she was seen as sort of standing up for Obamacare and walking a tricky line of not trying to take health care away. However, the state has really soured on their um, Republican senator who tries to convey herself as an independent. Part of the issue for her is she's kind of has critics on both sides now. Her vote to support uh, the nomination of Justice Brett Kavanaugh is something that really angered some of her supporters on the left. At the same time, some of her supporters on the right, she has some very strong Trump supporters, think that she is uh, someone who is not on the president's side. Um, She's having critics on both sides as she tries to maintain um, a level of bipartisan independence. One thing going for Susan Collins, however, she has really deep connections with a lot of local officials and voters. She's been working in that state on a one-to-one constituent level for a long time. This is going to be a really interesting race to watch because there will be some Trump effect here. But I think this is going to be um, a test of the two candidates um, as much as anything. Mm. Jane, what do you think about that uh, race in Maine? I I think it's interesting because one of the things that we've seen um, through the Trump era and before is the nationalization of local politics. And I think the main race is a prime example. She's, you know, she not only did Sarah Gideon raise $23 million from voters in Maine and national democratic donors, she also has the $3.5 million that was raised during and after the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh, um, as the New York Times reported. So there's this war chest that whomever won this Democratic uh, primary was going to receive that had markedly little to do about whomever the candidate was and all to do with defeating Collins. And so I think that this really plays into the Trump effect. And, you know, I think that the nationalization of these politics means that a race, you know, let's keep in mind that uh, Senator Collins won in 2014 with about 69% of the vote. It wasn't really up for grabs in any way. And yet, six years later, she's in a do or die political matchup. You know, I'm just so struck by one of the f- facts you brought up there. $23 million war chest. We're talking Maine. I mean, it's like I don't even understand how you would spend $23 million in a, in a Senate race in Maine. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure she'll figure out a way to spend it. I want to make sure we talk about um, a new poll uh, from Quinni- uh, Quinnipiac University. It shows that Biden is now leading President Trump by 15 points, 52 to 36. I bring it up because... You know, a poll is only a poll. It's only a snapshot of the moment. But, of course, there have been a string of polls, both national polls, battleground polls that show President Trump well behind in this race. Still lots of time to go to Election Day. But, Lisa, what are you seeing in either in this particular poll or or this recent batch of polls that suggests that President Trump has has, uh, some strong headwinds? Oh, it's clear they're very strong headwinds. And you look at he's losing states that, in fact, the states that got him elected, you can say he's losing now. Pennsylvania, Arizona, um, places like that where he was able to really appeal, especially um, to white voters or some working class, not all. Um, they are they are turning on him right now. Now, what I'm interested to see is, do we see Trump voters stay home? Or do we see them vote for Biden? Right now, Biden is leading in these kind of key states. Florida is another one. Um, but I want to see if it's an enthusiasm gap, which is a problem for Trump, or if it's that people are going with Biden. Right now, it looks like it's just people are moving away from Trump. You look at states that are in play, Georgia is now considered a toss-up state. And Georgia's been moving um, Democratic for a while. There, there's a lot of reasons for that. But to the idea that President Trump could lose Georgia just shows... Uh, the kind of situation he's in, which is not good. And it's one of the reasons that his campaign manager was demoted this week. That's right. His campaign manager, Mm -hmm. uh, Brad Parscale, uh, replaced by Mm -hmm. Bill Stepien, currently the deputy campaign manager. Uh, He's going to step in. Uh, Final word from you, Jane, uh, about um, this race and the headwinds that President Trump uh, faces. What does he have to do if he wants to turn this race around? It's interesting because there is what he has to do to turn this race around and what he is willing to do to turn this race around. And those are two very different things. I think you saw some of the responses from Trump donors to the Parscale news saying, you know, oh, I hope this means that Trump doesn't tweet as much. When I'm like, there's not a power on the face of the (laughs) earth that could get Trump to stop tweeting as much. It's what he likes to do. And so I think occasionally we we see this, um, you know, when we talk about Trump's base, I think it's important that that's that is a 
group of people who are, let's say, the kind of people who would buy the album and go to the concert, not just the people who voted for him. Mm. And so you see from people who are Trump supportive, but are a little skeptical that, you know, if he could just stay focused on coronavirus, if he could just stay away from culture war, if he could really talk about the populist ideas that he came into office kind of thinking of, then we'd be so much better off. But there's been no sign over the last four years he has any interest in doing any of that. Somewhere there is on Earth, too, another Trump, a different Trump who is not this one. But I think that what we see through, you know, is that what the Biden campaign has decided to do is just let Trump Trump all over the place and remain largely quiet. Right. And And that seems to be working out pretty well for him. Uh, Jane Koston, senior political reporter at Fox, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful. Thank you. And Lisa Desjardins, correspondent covering Congress for PBS NewsHour. Lisa, always great to have you. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm Anthony Brooks. Have a great weekend. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 